0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, part one of The Ghosts of the Alamo, titled The Gathering Storm. There's a legend in old Texas that in the days and hours following the fall of the Alamo, after Santa Anna sent orders to destroy the old mission, that Colonel Sanchez, with orders from General Juan José Andrade, with a company of Mexican soldiers, "'ran into a very strange and unexpected situation. "'It had been six weeks since the battle, "'and the Alamo's scars were still showing, fresh and deep. "'It was unholy quiet at the sight of the mission. "'Gone were the sounds of the Mexican bugle playing de "'the song that meant there would be no quarter shown "'for any of the bloody defenders. "'There were no sounds of cannon, or muskets being fired, "'or battle commands being screamed "'as men on both sides fought for their lives. "'Only piles of freshly dug mass graves.' the dirt mixed with ashes and bones of the bodies of the 189 Texians who had been bayoneted and piled outside the Alamo on three funeral pyres for burning. Santa Ana wanted this last symbol of Texans' resistance removed from the landscape, showing absolute victory, no quarter, no peace. A warning to these fool Texans and Tejanos who still rebelled against the central authority. Against him. The orders were simple enough, Colonel Sanchez thought, as he and his contingent of soldiers approached the Alamo. His plans were to dynamite the chapel and torch the long barracks. His detail of men dismounted in front of the chapel, preparing to enter and place the charges when some of them shrank back in fear, first one, and then another, crossing themselves and saying, Diablos! Diablos! meaning devils. They said they were seeing phantoms holding swords in the air, blocking the entrance. The men, all battle-hardened, but now terrified of something beyond their grasp, turned back toward their mounts, which had bolted in fear, and failing to reach them, ran back to camp, crying, Diablos! Diablos! in chorus. They had seen the devil, and they weren't going back. Back in camp, Sanchez, who had been unable to make any of his men enter the chapel, harshly punished the men who had fled, and threatened the worst for those men who refused to return. No one in the detail would go back. "'You can shoot us,' they said, "'but we are not going back there. It is haunted.' Now Colonel Sanchez had to report to General Andrade, who scoffed at him, and ordered ten of his bravest men to accompany him back to the old mission to finish the job. As they approached the mission they were met by the same six figures, now carrying balls of fire in their hands, and shouting, "'Do not touch the walls of the Alamo!' Andrade's men fled in terror as the specters threw balls of fire at their horses. There was a scene of wild melee, with screaming horses and men, which lasted less than a minute, and then there was silence again. The Mexican soldiers had left, never to return. Today there stands an Alamo monument called the Cenotaph, which depicts one of those spectral figures. It also contains the names of all the men who defended the Alamo. It surprises no one that a legend like this could be believed by so many even today. The last stand at the Alamo became a metaphor for bravery in the face of unsurmountable odds. The memories of the men who fought there will never be forgotten. And it is not unreasonable to believe that their souls could not find peace and would want to come back to the place that they had fought and died for. Their mission was unfinished. There is a spirit that lingers here at the old mission. Read it any way you want it, but it's the same spirit that makes Texas and the people who call themselves Texans different. It's as if they carry a piece of the Alamo in their hearts. They equate the name Alamo with freedom. Today, only the chapel and the long barracks remain. The rest had to give way to development as San Antonio grew around it. The mass graves are covered by a serene courtyard plaza where tourists pause to check out their maps. The room where Jim Bowie, lying sick on a cot, was bayoneted by Mexican troops has been replaced by a busy street corner. The chapel, pockmarked by bullet holes, where Susanna Dickinson, her baby, and a handful of wives and kitchen helpers cringing in terror as the Mexican stormed through the sandbags blocking the entrance, killing every defender, surrendered or not, still stands as a grim reminder of the carnage that was Santa Ana's legacy. In this two-part story, we'll cover the Battle of the Alamo and its importance to Texas becoming a republic, as well as the ghosts of the Alamo. In my mind, two types of ghosts, ghosts which have existed as spectral figures around the Alamo since the days after the siege, and the ghosts of doubt and confusion which have sidelined historians with regard to some of the key questions regarding the battle itself. In saying that, I mean this. Historians have been sifting through every detail of the story of the Alamo for years, and for the most part, they have the story nailed down. But when it comes to who died, where, and when, they're not all agreed. Why is it important to know how and when and in what location was Colonel Travis or Colonel Davy Crockett or Jim Bowie? when they breathe their last breath, is important to people who want to know Alamo history. I'm not sure what the psychological process is that demands that knowledge, but I believe it's closure. The fates of Travis and Bowie we pretty much know for sure. Travis was on top of the barracks at the north wall, firing down at the attackers as they tried to mount using wooden ladders. The roof there was only 12 feet high, so it was close work, and anyone standing on top made just as good a target, and probably better, Than those at the bottom, one of the many reasons that the Alamo was impossible to defend. One historian, noting the fact that the Alamo covered a sprawling three acres with nearly a quarter mile perimeter to defend, admitted that one thousand men wouldn't have been enough to defend it. Travis was shot in the head and was among the first of the defenders to die. Bowie was confined to a sick room and was lying on a cot when he was bayoneted by Mexican soldiers. Crockett is an enigma. Susanna Dickinson, upon being led out of the chapel with a handful of survivors, said she saw, quote, Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the chapel and the low barracks to the south. San Antonio's alcalde, or mayor, Mayor Ruiz, who swore that he was asked by Santa Anna to identify Crockett, saw Crockett's body, quote, toward the west side of the garrison, which conflicts with Dickinson's account. He also reported that Travis's body was found near a gun carriage on the north wall with a single bullet wound to the forehead. Bowie's body was found in a room on the south side. Ruiz's testimony is important, so I'm going to add all I can here. Ruiz stated that when the Mexicans entered the walls, he and political chief Don Ramon Musquiz accompanied Don Carlos de la Garza across the bridge on Commerce Street so that they might get a better view. However, although they were neutral, Mexican dragoons fired on them, Pushing them to withdraw. After half an hour, Santa Ana sent for Ruiz, ordering him to join him in the Alamo to locate and identify the bodies of Travis, Crockett, and Bowie. After locating the bodies and identifying them, Ruiz was instructed to help dispose of the dead Mexican soldiers and to form a detail to gather wood for the burning of the defenders' bodies. It was through the accounts of Ruiz that most historians based the confirmed number of defenders of the Alamo. Ruiz stated that the Mexican army burned 182 defenders after the battle. Gregorio Esparza, a Tejano defender, is known to have had his body claimed by his two brothers, who received permission from Santa Ana to do so in order to give him a Christian burial. As to the names of the defenders, you'll meet many of them in this story. They deserve their place in history. A letter to the New Orleans commercial bulletin just a month after the fall of the Alamo quoted Joe, the slave of the Alamo commander, Travis, as saying, Davy Crockett died like a hero, surrounded by heaps of the enemy. Joe reported to Colonel James H. Perry, a member of Sam Houston's staff, that Crockett had cheered on his companions until just he and six others were left. The Mexicans called on them to yield, but Crockett shouted at them in defiance, leaped into the crowd of soldiers below, and rushed out toward the city. He held at bay two pursuing soldiers for a time until he was finally thrust through with a lance. A second paper also quoted Joe saying that Crockett and his men were found lying together with 21 of the slain enemy lying around them. By June of 1836, a different report emerged, this time from an unidentified Mexican source who claimed that Crockett and five others had been surrounded and ordered to surrender by General Manuel Castrillon. They did so only to be executed on Santa Ana's orders. They were run through with swords. In eighteen forty, author Edward Stiff, in his adventure narrative The Texas Emigrant, cited a servant of Santa Ana, a black American named Ben, who was with Santa Anna as he stopped to look at Crockett's body, which had no less than sixteen dead Mexicans gathered round it, one of them with Davy's knife buried to the hilt in his chest. Mexican sergeant Francisco Becerra gave a different account, saying that a firing line of Mexican soldiers executed Crockett along with Travis. The soldiers were so wildly enthusiastic that "'that they killed or wounded eight of their own comrades in the process. "'Among the dozens of other counts that survive "'is that of Lieutenant José Enrique de la Peña, "'which is accepted by many historians today, "'which exists in his diary which was published in Mexico in 1955. "'This account alleges that Crockett was one of seven Texans taken alive, "'ordered to kneel, and then was executed on Santa Ana's orders. "'They were executed, he said, with swords.' De La Pena's diary resurfaced in 1975, this time published by University Press in the U.S. Historians accept this, even though not one page of the actual manuscript is in De La Pena's authenticated handwriting, and a number of passages are almost identical to other accounts only made public after De La Pena's death in 1840. There was a second account, apparently from George M. Dolson, an interpreter, whose job it was soon after to record the statement of a Mexican staff officer who had been captured and brought to Galveston for interrogation. And that account tends to back up de la Pena's, which is probably why many historians go with de la Pena's diary. That Mexican officer said he was present when Crockett, and he says five of his men were discovered in a back room and brought out to face Santa Ana, who chastised his officers for allowing the men to live and ordered them killed on the spot. I don't trust the de la Pena account, because the original manuscript was rewritten by someone else, and we don't know who, and how many years later, we don't know, and why, and with what axe to grind. Too many questions still need to be answered. Recently, some very detailed comparisons have been made between the two reports, comparisons which leave some pretty big question marks, the biggest being that de la Pena claimed the prisoners were shot, while Interpreter Dolson interpreted that they were reported as being bayoneted. Both of the original claimants were there, The horror of the execution was real, yet they couldn't agree on how the prisoners were killed. What was also unusual was that neither of these witnesses knew what Crockett looked like or who he was. I'm going to stick with old Joe's story. He sure as hell knew what Crockett looked like. I'm also going to believe that Crockett took some men with him when his time came. The History Channel recently came out with an episode of America Unearthed that tried lamely to make the case that Crockett survived and had signed a land grant in Alabama. Forget the fact that the land-grant signer who signed David Crockett actually had a different last name that he didn't use on the document. That was discovered recently. All that and much else, just a sign that the American psyche doesn't want to give up on their heroes. We all know Elvis is alive and running a hot dog stand in Tupelo. Okay, I get it. I like the History Channel, but some of their recent shows have gotten fast and loose with the facts. I'll tell them right out that they had it right with the photograph of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on the dock to Jaluit. They backed down from that story, but they had it right. I'd like to see them come back to it. I owe it to you listeners to give you the history of the Alamo, the aftermath, and some of the lesser-known facts which most of you who know my work rely on me for, including the story of San Jacinto and how the murdering monster Santa Anna, with the help of Sam Houston, slithered his way back into a leadership position after his deserved defeat and humiliation at San Jacinto. And all that and much more is just what we'll do right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Remember the Alamo. The cry rang out amidst the bursts of cannon fire over the deafening pop, pop, pop of brown bess, the Mexican cavalry standard firearm, and the moans of injured men whose last moments were spent on the hollowed church ground. The Battle of the Alamo in 1836 is indubitably the most remembered fight of the Texans' struggle for independence. John Wayne's portrayal of Davy Crockett in the 1960 film The Alamo only further illuminated the struggle the Texans faced as they strove to free themselves from Mexico's tightly clenched grip, and we'll talk about that 1960 film The Alamo in the coming story and just how closely tied John Wayne was to the making of that film, closely enough that his ghost, in addition to others, has been seen talking to the defenders. Their struggle will be remembered for all time, if not because of the rallying cry that echoed all throughout America, then because of the large number of spirits which are said to still haunt its bloodshed grounds. We'll also cover those stories, which are very interesting, to say the least. Way back when, before the Alamo earned its nickname, it was known as Mission San Antonio de Valero. Father Antonio had recalled the spot from nearly ten years earlier, and, as they stood below a single cottonwood tree that grew there, they decided that it was a very suitable location to build their mission. Many of you probably know this, but the word Alamo is Spanish for a cottonwood tree. Although the site was chosen in 1724, work didn't begin on Mission San Antonio de Valero's Stone Church until 1744. The church took its name from St. Anthony of Padua and San Antonio de Valero, the Spanish viceroy at the time the plan had been put into action. Mission San Antonio de Valero would be the first of five such missions built by the Franciscan monks along the San Antonio River. But all had been built with a singular purpose, to help spread the ideals of Roman Catholicism to the local Native American peoples who inhabited the region. In 1793, the Spanish had begun to secularize their missions, starting with San Antonio de Valero. For a time, the church became the location of the first hospital in Texas. Soon it was outfitted as a fort and was assigned a brand new nickname, the Alamo. The layout of the complex was perfect for barracks, and it was not to anyone's surprise in the budding city of San Antonio when, by 1803, a company of a hundred heavily armed soldiers and their families moved in. For a period of 32 years, the Alamo's defenders would protect the city from the raiding Apaches and Comanches, which were a constant threat. But when Mexico earned its independence from Spain in 1821, the people of San Antonio, and the cavalrymen who called the Alamo home, turned to their own hope for freedom from the reigning Mexican regime. The Texas Revolution erupted on October 2nd, 1835, near the town of Gonzales. The Texian troops banded together, driving into San Antonio. December 5th, 1835, commenced the five-day brutal struggle with the Mexican troops. For three long days, the fight wore on between the Texians and Santa Ana's brother-in-law, General Martin Perfector de Caz. What followed was a disturbingly gritty play of house-on-house assaults, snipers seated on top of the roofs as they scoped out their targets below, and on the street level, opposing forces clashed together in hand-to-hand combat. Both sides struggled to gain control of the city of San Antonio, but it would ultimately be the Texians who won the street fight, forcing the Mexican authorities to surrender. General Coss signed over everything that the Texians demanded, property, money, ammunition, and weapons Cos moved his troops to the Rio Grande and the siege of Bexar came to a close. But the win was short-lived. By January of 1836, the Texians had re-outfitted the old Mission Santonio de Valero as their home base. When Colonel James Bowie, the famed double-edged knife-wielding volunteer soldier, showed at the church, he'd been given orders from General Sam Houston to blow the Alamo up. Line the walls with dynamite and gunpowder, Houston had ordered, and blow it. We can't risk letting Santa Ana in to capture any weaponry, but Bowie saw the situation quite differently. He took one look at the mission and believed that if the Alamo fell, there was nothing, no barrier, no other defense, to keep General Santa Ana from infiltrating and recapturing the rest of Texas. So Bowie decided the Alamo would not be blown to smithereens. James Bowie and his 25 volunteers were not alone for that much longer. Bowie, who grew up wrestling alligators and coming out ahead in any number of knife fights and Indian skirmishes, was a man of sheer courage, and he was a born leader. And yes, he did business with a pirate named Jean Lafitte, and he made a fortune selling slaves, so he was no abolitionist, nor was he a particularly moral man. Like Crockett, Bowie was a living legend, and Bowie was big, tough, and afraid of nothing, but holding the Alamo with 25, or even 225 men, was going to be impossible over the long run. When Colonel William Travis showed up at the Alamo, he did so by bringing a battalion of more than a hundred military men. William Travis had arrived in Texas in April of 1831, applied for land, and opened a law office in San Felipe. He learned Spanish and soon became very successful. He also had a sense for command. He asked for a position in the Army when the Revolution began and was granted a position as a Colonel of Cavalry. He ended up pledging his commitment to the Alamo writing to the governor, quote, "'We consider death preferable to disgrace, which would be the result of giving up a post, meaning the Alamo, which has been so dearly won, and thus opening the door for the invaders to enter the sacred territory of the colonies. "'I am determined,' he wrote, "'to defend it to the last, and should Bexar fall, your friend will be buried beneath its ruins.'" He knew even then what the likely outcome was. There was conflict between Bowie and Travis, both of whom shared equal ranks, Conflict which came down to a vote between the men, a vote which Bowie won hands down. Bowie, however, was a very sick man, and the only medicine that kept him on his feet was liquor. He had seemed strong enough when he first arrived, but his condition was deteriorating rapidly. He began leading drunken parades through the streets of San Antonio, shouting and jostling people who he passed on the streets. Travis angrily wrote the governor that Bowie was interfering with private property, letting prisoners out of jail, and turning everything topsy-turvy. Travis added that he was unwilling to be responsible for the drunken irregularities of any man, but Bowie himself realized that his days on his feet were drawing short and eventually signed over his command to Travis. Here it was, February of 1836, as men worked hard in the winter cold to fortify the Alamo. Green Jameson was in charge of construction, and his first task was to close up the 75-foot gap between the church and the low barracks which he did with a high palisade of upright timbers backed by an earthen embankment from which riflemen could fire. Weak spots in the stone wall were reinforced with earthen timbers. Jameson worked closely with Almiron Dickinson, who had at least 18 cannon ready for service ranging from four-pounders to one that could fire an 18-pound ball. He placed that on the southwest corner, which faced all of San Antonio. They built a cannon emplacement inside the roofless church facing the front door and placed guns strategically around the wide perimeter. Their last placement was a small gun placed on top of the long barracks where it could defend the eastern approaches. That gun would end up doing the most damage of all of them to the attackers. Dickinson had settled in nearby Gonzales, and after the capture of the Alamo, he had brought his wife and baby daughter there for their safety, such as it was. Ammunition was limited, So Sam Blair, a 29-year-old Tennessean and the Alamo's Ordnance Chief, chopped up horseshoes to provide deadly grape shot. Dr. Amos Pollard, the Alamo's Chief Surgeon, built a hospital on the second floor of the Long Barracks. He was 33 years old and had practiced in New York and New Orleans before coming to Texas. There was young William Malone, an 18-year-old Georgian who had run away to Texas because he was afraid to face his father after getting drunk one night, and Robert Moore, a 55-year-old private from Virginia was the oldest member of the garrison 31 year old marcus Sewell, had been a shoemaker in england and henry warnell a 24 year old jockey from arkansas who after the death of his wife left his infant son with friends and moved to texas there was mikaja autry a drifter who had arrived in texas via north carolina and tennessee having been unsuccessful and unfulfilled trying to make a living as a teacher a writer a lawyer and a storekeeper he wrote to his wife, I am determined to provide a home for you or perish. He had enlisted in part because he had been offered, like the others, a generous grant of land. David Cummings, aged 27, left Lewiston, PA in 1835 to deliver to Sam Houston a box of rifles provided by his father and stayed to fight and die. John Forsythe, aged 39, a New Yorker, had been trained as a physician but never practiced. He left New York shortly after his wife's death in 1828 and had been recruited by Travis. Altogether they made 140 men, and still, the sum 140 was not enough, surely not enough to go after General Santa Anna's troops, which numbered to over 1,000 cavalrymen, not to mention infantry. Travis was in desperate need for more help. He penned the government in Texas. He sent one frantic missive, and another, and another, but there was no response. There was never a response, and Santa Ana's troops were quickly closing in. The riders were coming to Sam Houston with messages from Travis in the Alamo. We need you, but Houston was faced with an impossible decision. If he took the forces he had and went to join Travis at the Alamo, the chances were they would be wiped out, and the last hope for Texas would die with them. It was a hard, hard choice to make. Bowie and Travis's men were overjoyed on February 19, 1836, when a group of 20 sharpshooters called the Tennessee Mounted Volunteers arrived with the notorious Davy Crockett at the helm. Crockett's fame was known to all, a backwoodsman, an Indian fighter, and an American congressman from Tennessee. He was a living legend. He was perfect for the Texas independence cause. He rallied behind with the other supporters and helped to round out the number of Alamo defenders to 189. As the weeks quickly passed, Colonel Travis, who was in charge of the defense of the Alamo, as his peer Colonel Bowie was down and out with a serious illness, which was actually typhoid pneumonia, knew that he desperately needed reinforcements. The tally stood at 189 Alamo defenders against more than 1,500 Mexican soldiers. The odds were not in the Texians' favor, but they were dug in deep. They continued to build what breastworks they could, poured ammunition, loaded the cannons with a toxic mixture of nails and scrap metals, and piled sandbags at the entry doors to the chapel and at some of the entrances, and it was at the chapel where they placed their second biggest cannon. The chapel, where the civilians were to be kept, was the fallback location. In his last plea to the Texas government, Colonel William Travis wrote that their efforts at the Alamo would either earn them victory or they would die trying. At dawn on February 23rd, many of the panic-stricken inhabitants of San Antonio were packing up their belongings and leaving town. Travis posted a belfry in the tower of the San Antonio Church who saw the glint of sabers in the distance. Travis then sent two trusted civilians to get a better look and they came back with bad news. Santa Anna was headed their way with thousands in his command. Those who had family in town, including Dickinson and Bowie, brought their families back to the Alamo. Travis began to deploy his men for battle. He had offered Crockett a rank when he arrived and Crockett had refused it, saying, Just list me as being here. I'll do all I can to help. When Travis deployed the defenders, Crockett said, Here I am, Colonel. Assign me to some place, and I and my Tennessee boys will defend it all right. Travis then posted Crockett and his men at the newly built palisade between the church and the low barracks, where he felt the fortress was most vulnerable. If you're standing looking at the chapel today, or if you can imagine that you're standing looking at the chapel from the front, you are standing in the plaza, with the street and the city behind you. The door to the chapel actually faced the interior of the compound, so the entirety of the Alamo garrison is behind you as you face the door, the compound having been replaced now by the city, its streets, and its structures. Only the chapel and the long barracks still exist. The long barracks are to the left of the chapel. Just to the right of the chapel, where you now see cottonwood trees, there were no trees. That was the 75-foot palisade that was built for defense, which had four four-pound guns "'and slits for Crockett's men to shoot through. "'Behind you and to your right were the low barracks, "'the outline of which I believe is now marked in white "'across the plaza on which you're standing. Bowie's room was at the end of the low barracks, "'nearest the chapel. "'Everything behind you, "'which is now streets and buildings and cars and tourists, "'was the plaza of the Alamo "'with the west wall being furthest behind you. "'Far off to your left was the north wall, "'where Travis was killed.' Not four days later, General Santa Anna and his troops swarmed in, capturing the city of San Antonio. At the historic San Fernando Church, which in those days was clearly within sight of the Alamo from its tower, Santa Anna raised a red flag. The red indicated that he would leave no survivors if the revolutionaries did not surrender. Santa Anna reiterated this message in a strongly worded letter to United States President Andrew Jackson. This letter was not widely distributed, and it is unlikely that most of the American recruits serving in the Texian army were aware that there would be no prisoners of war, at least until that red flag went up. By late afternoon, Bexar, San Antonio, was occupied by about 1,500 Mexican soldiers. When the Mexican troops raised a blood-red flag signifying no quarter, Travis responded with a blast from the Alamo's largest cannon. Believing that Travis had acted hastily, Bowie sent Jameson to meet with Santa Ana, Travis was angered that Bowie had acted unilaterally and sent his own representative, Captain Albert Martin. Both emissaries met with Colonel Juan Almonte and Jose Bartres. According to Almonte, the Texians asked for an honorable surrender but were informed that any surrender must be unconditional. On learning this, Bowie and Travis mutually agreed to fire the cannon again. Santa Anna ordered his bugler to play diguelo, a bugle call meaning no quarter. This is what that bugle call sounded like. The first night of the siege was relatively quiet. Over the next few days, Mexican soldiers established artillery batteries, initially about 1,000 feet from the south and east walls of the Alamo. A third battery was positioned southeast of the fort. Each night, the batteries inched closer to the Alamo walls. During the first week of the siege, more than 200 cannonballs landed in the Alamo plaza. At first, the Texians matched Mexican artillery fire, often reusing the Mexican cannonballs. Two notable events occurred on Wednesday, February 24th. At some point that day, Bowie collapsed from illness, leaving Travis in sole command of the garrison. Late that afternoon, two Mexican scouts became the first fatalities of the siege. The following morning, two to three hundred Mexican soldiers crossed the San Antonio River and took cover in abandoned shacks near the Alamo walls. Several Texians ventured out to burn the huts, while Texians within the Alamo provided cover fire. After a two-hour skirmish, the Mexican troops retreated to Bexar. Six Mexican soldiers were killed and four others were wounded, and no Texians were injured. What they call a blue norther blew in on February 25th, dropping the temperature to 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Neither army was prepared for the cold temperatures. Texian attempts to gather firewood were thwarted by Mexican troops. On the evening of February 26th, Colonel Juan Bringas engaged several Texians who were burning more huts. According to historian J.R. Edmondson, one Texian was killed. Four days later, Texians shot and killed Private First Class Secundino Alvarez, a soldier from one of the two battalions that Santa Ana had stationed on two sides of the Alamo. On February 26th, Travis ordered the artillery to conserve powder and shot. On that day, February 26th, Colonel Fannin, located near Goliad, just two days' march from San Antonio, with 320 men, had waited too long to move to help the Alamo. All of them there at the Alamo were hoping and expecting him to come. He suddenly had a rash of bad luck. His oxen mysteriously got loose and it took a full day to recover them. A supply wagon broke down. Very likely there were spies in his force that contributed to the melee and the upshot was that he decided to return to Fort Defiance in Goliad, a decision which would end up costing he and most of his men their lives. By March 1st, the number of Mexican casualties was nine dead and four wounded, while the Texian garrison had lost only one man. Santa Ana posted one company east of the Alamo on the road to Gonzales. Almonte and 800 dragoons were stationed along the road to Goliad. Throughout the seas, these towns had received multiple couriers dispatched by Travis to plead for reinforcements and supplies. The most famous of his missives, written February 24th, was addressed to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. According to historian Mary Deborah Petit, the letter is considered by many as one of the masterpieces of American patriotism. Copies of the letter were distributed across Texas and eventually reprinted throughout the United States and much of Europe. At the end of the first day of the siege, Santa Ana's troops were reinforced by 600 men under General Joaquin Ramirez y Sesma, bringing the Mexican army up to more than 2,000 men. On March 3rd, the Texians watched from the walls as approximately 1,000 Mexicans marched into Bexar. The Mexican army celebrated loudly throughout the afternoon, both in honor of their reinforcements and at the news that troops under General José de Urea had soundly defeated Texian Colonel Frank Johnson at the Battle of San Patricio on February 27. Most of the Texians in the Alamo believed that Sesma had been leading the Mexican forces during the siege, and they mistakenly attributed the celebration to the arrival of Santa Ana, the reinforcements brought the number of Mexican soldiers in Bexar to nearly 3,000. The arrival of the Mexican reinforcements prompted Travis to send three men, including Davy Crockett, to find Fannin's force, which he still believed to be en route. The scouts discovered a large group of Texians camped 20 miles from the Alamo. Lindley's research indicates that up to 50 of these men had come from Goliad after Fannin's aborted rescue mission. The others had left Gonzales several days earlier. Just before daylight on March 4th, part of the Texian force broke through Mexican lines and entered the Alamo. Mexican soldiers were able to drive a second reinforcement group back across the prairie. They never would make it into the Alamo to help. Legend holds that at some point on March 5th, Travis gathered his men and explained that an attack was imminent and that they were greatly outnumbered by the Mexican army. He drew a line in the sand in the plaza and asked those willing to die for the Texian cause to cross and stand alongside him. Only one man, Moses Rose, was said to have declined. Most scholars disregard this tale as there's no primary source evidence to support it. The story only surfaced decades after the battle in a third-hand account. Travis apparently did, at some point, prior to the final assault, assemble the men for a conference to inform them of the dire situation and giving them the chance to either escape or stay and die for the cause. Susanna Dickinson recalled Travis announcing that any men who wished to escape should let it be known and step out of the ranks. Which brings us to Moses Rose's story, The Man Who Refused to Step Over the Line. And we'll return with that story and a lot more right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. According to the most commonly told story, Rose was a 51 year old French Jew who had served in the French army under Napoleon. Of wars and death and dying, he had seen enough, yet here he was, right in the middle of another war. He had supposedly served in Italy the French invasion of Russia, and the Peninsular War, although attempts at proving that from French records have proved unsuccessful thus far. It seems clear that he was at the Alamo for a portion at least of the 13-day siege and missed the massacre at dawn on March 6th of 1836, because when Travis drew that line in the sand, Rose refused to cross it and slipped over the wall that night and returned to his wife and family. In the years following, Rose knew many details about the Alamo garrison and gave the names of some participants, and whenever asked, admitted that he had left when given the chance before the final assault, because he was not ready to die. When the time came to assign awards to the families of the defenders, Rose, who lived and worked as a butcher in Nacogdoches, and had been totally open and honest about what he had done, was relied upon to testify that certain men had been there at the Alamo. Rose testified on behalf of the estates of five men who may have been at the Alamo. In each of these cases he made statements similar to, quote, "'Left him in the Alamo,' 3rd March, 1836. In none of his testimony did Rose explicitly state that he was a member of the Alamo garrison, or that he had entered the Alamo and later escaped. In at least one case, the man on whose behalf he testified had not been at the Alamo, although he had the same name as one of the known Alamo defenders. In a second case, the man, Henry Teal, was later proved to have died after the battle's conclusion. Rose was said to have been a member of Colonel James Bowie's forces and had fought during the Siege of Bexar. The available records do not permit historians to confirm these accounts, and there have been questions as to Rose's involvement. Rose's name is not found on any muster rolls for the Siege of Bexar. Neither a Lewis nor a Moses Rose is listed on the muster rolls that James C. Neal compiled for the Alamo Garrison on December 31, 1835 or February 1, 1836, although Bowie was listed on the latter document. Rose, according to his story, managed to evade Mexican forces and made his way to Grimes County, where he found rest and shelter at the home of one William P. Zuber. Rose made no attempt at hiding the true story of his journey, attributing his decision to a love for his family, including his children, stating that he just wasn't ready to die, or that he had the desire to fight another day, rather than to face a slaughter like those he'd seen in previous failed battles. Rose did not fight another day, but moved on to settle in Nacogdoches, Texas, where he operated a butcher shop. He would unashamedly explain to customers or anyone who asked why he had decided not to die at the Alamo. When the legendary account is accepted, Louis Rose is sometimes portrayed as a coward, though he was 51 at the time and had seen the cost of feudal warfare and conflicts on two continents. This is largely due to pride Texans take from the Battle of the Alamo and the contrast of Rose with the defenders who chose to stay and die his alleged actions suffer further in comparison with the 32 volunteers who evaded the Mexican forces and fought them to join the garrison. He was also sometimes casually questioned about his actions at the famous battle and never denied that he'd been there. As noted above, on some list of the participants in the Battle of the Alamo, Rose is not even listed. Proponents of the legendary account believe this is so because Rose left before the climax of the battle. Reportedly, Rose died about 1850 in Louisiana, In 1927, relatives of Rose presented his musket to the Alamo Museum. One last footnote on him. The 1952 film The Man from the Alamo, starring Glenn Ford, was loosely based on Rose's story, and Ford's character is accused of having been a coward, even though he was selected to escape the Alamo to protect the families of the defenders from looters and bandits. The film is very poor on historical accuracy, though the opening scenes of the battle are well done and the plot was criticized by some Texan traditionalist groups, such as the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. The last Texian verified to have left the Alamo was James Allen, a courier who carried personal messages from Travis and several of the other men, on March 5th, the day before the fall. At 10 p.m. on March 5th, the Mexican artillery ceased their bombardment. As Santa Ana had anticipated, the exhausted Texians soon fell into the first uninterrupted sleep many of them had had since the siege began. Just after midnight, more than 2,000 Mexican soldiers began preparing for the final assault. Fewer than 1,800 were divided into four columns, commanded by Caz, Col. Francisco Duque, Col. Jose Maria Romero, and Col. Juan Morales. Veterans were positioned on the outside of the columns to better control the new recruits and conscripts in the middle. As a precaution, 500 Mexican cavalry were positioned around the Alamo to prevent the escape of either Texian or Mexican soldiers. Santa Anna remained in camp with the 400 reserves. Despite the bitter cold, the soldiers were ordered not to wear overcoats which could impede their movements. Clouds concealed the moon and thus the movements of the soldiers. At 5.30 a.m. on the morning of the 6th, troops silently advanced. Kaz and his men approached the northwest corner of the Alamo, while Duque led his men from the northwest towards a repaired breach in the Alamo's north wall. The column commanded by Romero marched toward the east wall and Morales' column aimed for the low parapet by the chapel. The three Texian sentinels stationed outside the walls were killed in their sleep, allowing Mexican soldiers to approach undetected within musket range of the walls. At this point, the silence was broken by shouts of Viva Santa Ana! and music from the buglers. The noise woke the Texans. Most of the non-combatants gathered in the church sacristy for safety. Captain John Bow, Travis's adjutant and second-in-command, was on the walls, he shouted the alarm, and men ran to Travis's room, crying, The Mexicans are coming. Travis grabbed his double-barreled shotgun and sword and rushed to his post, yelling, Come on, boys. The Mexicans are upon us, and we'll give them hell. And as he passed a group of Tejanos, No said muchachos. Don't surrender, boys. We'll return with Part 2 of The Ghosts of the Alamo next week Sunday here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries to cover the Battle of the Alamo, the following defeat of the Mexican army by Sam Houston at San Jacinto, and the many stories and legends of the ghosts which followed that terrible day in March of 1836 and are still seen today in San Antonio. We appreciate reviews, especially from Apple and Spotify listeners, so if you enjoy our show and would like to refer new listeners to us, reviews are a great way to do it. Sharing with friends and family is another great way. And since this season brings the spirit of giving... Please consider pledging a few dollars a month to help us continue to bring you a wide variety of history and classic literature, all family-friendly and all entertaining. For less than the cost of a blended cup of coffee, you can help 1001 Stories become 2001 Stories by going to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com, forward slash, 1001 network. That's patreon.com, forward slash, 1001 network, And pledge a little bit of money to help us out. I know you all get pressured from every corner to help out different entities. But in me, you have one guy who's been doing this for five years out of pure love for storytelling and sharing. And I think that counts for something. It's also amazing that I still have a voice. Until next Sunday night, everyone. Stay safe out there and remember, it's a crazy world and getting crazier. Might as well enjoy shows like this way you can. See you next Sunday.